Praise the Lord, everybody. We're glad to be with you again for another exciting study in the Word. This day, we're going to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. I'd like us to make a few comments about the marriage in Cana. So we want to look at this marriage, Jesus' mother, and then also the miracle that was involved with this. And I'll just read the first few verses, and then we'll get into the, the story. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. Let's have a brief word of prayer. Father, we're grateful have this opportunity to look into the scripture. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. Help us to see with, with clarity what you're trying to teach us in this story. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure plenty of people have read this story and wondered why it is the first of Jesus' miracles. And I've meditated on this a lot of times, just thinking about that myself, because it is such a strange story in comparison with so many other miracles, signs, and wonders that Jesus did. But at the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, I want to make reference to what John says in verses 30 and 31. He says, Many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And he said, These are written that the reader might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing he might find life through his name. And you can see at the end of chapter 21, uh, verse 25, that if all the things Jesus had done had been composed, or should say written down, there wouldn't be a library in the world big enough to contain it all. So we want to emphasize in the beginning that John chose this miracle, as with all the other miracles in his gospel, because of a specific purpose. They are designed to help people believe that Jesus is who he says he is. In chapter 1, we learn that Jesus is the Son of God. And John is pretty clear about that, telling us that God became flesh in verse 14. Then he tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You can see that in verse 29. And then you can also look down there in verse number 36, where he says the same thing. Then John takes us into the calling of the disciples. And it's afterwards that he explains to Nathaniel, I believe, at the end of chapter number one. He says, if you, in verse 50 and 51, he says, if you believe because I told you I saw you under the tree, you'll see greater things. Paul continues his story somewhat in a chronological way by telling us in verse 1 on the third day there was a marriage. Now, marriages are causes for celebration. People are rarely, rarely unhappy at a marriage. So the family and the friends gather together. Usually there's a lot of food and drink and so on and so forth. And you try to guesstimate how many people are going to show up. It wasn't like, it wasn't then like it is now where someone has to RSVP for a marriage. If you had a daughter or son getting married, the village was invited. 
and you had no idea on this earth how many people were going to show up. But at this particular marriage, as the scripture says, it was in northern Israel in that area of Cana of Galilee, a very small place, beautiful place, still inhabited today by people that live within that uh, particular district, even if it's not on the exact same grounds as this here. But the mother of Jesus, she was invited. So she had come. Now, John doesn't say her name. We know her name was Mary. John does mention her in other places. And of course, she was standing by the cross when Jesus said to Mary, woman, behold, your son, who's going to take care of you. And John pretty much was supposed to look after uh, Mary from that time. But in verse two, you can see Jesus was also called and his disciples. Now, I don't know if at this time he had all 12 or just the ones that are mentioned in chapter one. However, we do know that if Jesus has disciples now, it is it is pretty much an apparent thing that he's a teacher and there are people wanting to hear what he has to say. The other gospels tell us that when Jesus was baptized, John the Baptist saw the dove descending upon Jesus. And the Bible tells us in Luke that after the baptism, Jesus went back into Galilee in the power of the Holy Ghost. And it says his fame spread abroad. So it was obvious that when he went south and then came back north, there was something different about him. And he had these disciples that were trailing him. And so Mary comes up to him at this great celebration and says the people want wine. They don't have it. Now, the first principle I'm going to bring out to you is that whatever's going on in your life, if you have a need, take it to God. If you lack anything, take it to God. There's no need for me to get into the whole discussion about the Bible processes or ancient processes for making wine and the laws of fermentation. Let me simply say this, that in comparison with now, even then, the ancients typically for each part or portion of wine, three to five parts or portions of water was added. So in that regard, it's nothing like the kinds of um, fermented materials that we have today. Not to say they didn't know what fermented materials were, but very simply to say to you that the dilution and the, the water and the wine mixture was different then than it is now. But she comes to Jesus with an express need, and Jesus says something peculiar in verse 4. He basically is saying to her, how is your business my business right now? That's what he's saying. This, this, this is a wedding. You recognize they have no wine. The people have come and told you that they have no wine. But why at this point are you coming to let me know? Well, Mary knows Jesus is special. She, she, she was there when the people showed up with the gifts for her son. She understood that the angel Gabriel came to her and told her that her son would be different, unique. He'd be a savior. She's simply been waiting for the moment when he's supposed to manifest his call in his life and for people to see that. So she comes to him knowing that he obviously is able to do something. This is when he makes the statement to her. He wasn't being disrespectful by the use of the word woman it would be no different than someone saying madam or ma'am. And you'll see other other occasion in this gospel where that word woman is used also. But he says, my hour isn't come. This phrase 
you'll find again in chapter 7. You'll find it again in chapter 12. You'll find again in chapter 13, verse 1, when it says Jesus knew that his hour had come. That means it was time for him to depart from this world and be crucified. Timings, time frames, and seasons were very important to Jesus. They should be important to you. There are things that God wants to do in your life that he cannot do until you enter into a certain season of your life. Now, I've said this and taught this for a long time. When the scripture says God will give you the desires of your heart, there's two ways to look at that. Number one, you can believe that God will give you whatever you want. Or the other way you can believe that God will actually insert the desires that he wants you to have inside of your heart. In either case, do you realize that when you go through different seasons, your desires tend to change? The things that you wanted as a child are different than the things that you wanted when you were a teenager. The things you desired as a teenager, totally different than what you wanted in your late 20s. In your late 20s, you wanted things that you certainly have no desire to get involved with in your 60s, 70s, and 80s. You say, well, can you give me an example? Of course. When you were five or six, you wanted a tricycle or a bicycle. But when you became a 19, 20, 21-year-old, you weren't interested in tricycle anymore. You were interested in other things. And who do you know that is 55 and older who is looking to try to become a parent again? I don't know too many people that hit that age and are running around praying and saying, Oh, God, please let me be a mom or dad one more time. And I don't think I've ever met an 80-year-old who's willing and ready and wanting to take on another mortgage. Your desires tend to change according to the season of your life. It says in Acts chapter 7, I believe verse 23 or somewhere in there, that it came into Moses' heart when he was 40 to check on his brethren, the children of Israel. So Jesus knows that there are specific time frames to his life, just like there are to yours. And verse 5, after he made that statement, his mother, she continues, she says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. There's a mother who trusts in her son, who's the son of God. There's a mother that has faith in the ability of her son to work the works of God. And she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Who are the servants? People that are working at the marriage. People that are serving. We, we might say a waiter or a waitress, but I don't think that would still be the appropriate uh, term. These were likely indentured servants, possibly slaves working for various families in the area. But whatever, they were called and they were appointed to serve. Now, I hope and pray that all of us would be just like that. Paul considered himself a bondservant to Jesus Christ. Would you be willing to do whatever God tells you to do? Would you be willing to yield your life to God and do whatever he said to do? Abraham was 75 when the Lord told him to leave the land of Ur. Moses was 80 when God spoke to him at the bush and told him to leave. Think about Jehoiada the priest. He helped look after the young king Joash until he was about 130 years of age and then he died. So you should be willing to give God your all, regardless of what he tells you to do, even if what he tells you to do seems foolish. 
Again, verse number five, whatsoever he saith to you to do, do it. That's the heart of a servant. So verse six introduces the six water pots. Water pots were used for purification. And in celebrations where I've gone in Bedouin communities in the Middle East and in a lot of uh, Arab Muslim uh, celebrations where I've gone in years past, you still have these points of purification. may not necessarily be a stone pot, but you have these places for purification. And the, and the men and women would walk up to these and they'd stick their hands in the water and they'd take the water and wash their hands and wash their feet. Just like when somebody entered somebody's house, they brought them a bowl of water, a basin of water so they could wash their feet because in their sandals, they had accumulated dust and everything else. People weren't wearing Nikes and they weren't wearing cowboy boots and the kinds of shoes and different things like that that we wear. They typically wore sandals. Well, a stone pot was useful because unlike a mud clay pot, it was the belief in ancient times that the stone would not accumulate all kinds of bacteria and other things. So here you have six stone pots, each of them able to hold, uh, say, 20 to 30 gallons of water. So with all six, let's just... Just, just be liberal and say 180 gallons of water or so. And these were for the purification of the people who are coming to the wedding. So verse 7, Jesus, after had, having had the conversation with his mother, he instigates the miracle. How does he do it? He says in verse 7, fill the water pots with water. He said, well, why were the water pots empty? Remember, you've got a lot of people coming in and out. So you've got people that are cleansing and purifying themselves. And even though just taking a little bit of water in your hands and, and splashing it on your face and on your feet, that doesn't seem like a whole lot. If you have multitudes of people doing that, that water disappears. If it was hot and it was in the middle of the summer, you might even have a little bit of evaporation also. Not a lot in a stone water pot, but maybe a little bit. But Jesus said, fill it or fill them, and they filled them. The master speaks, the servants obey. Are you willing to follow God like that? If God said to you, fill six bags of groceries and take them to somebody that needs them, would you be willing to do that? Especially in these times in which we're living now. There's a lot of social distancing People are nervous about leaving their homes. Some people are fretting. There's a lot of anxiety. Would you be willing to hear the master say to you, fill your car with groceries? Would you be willing to bless somebody else? I want you to understand that on the other side of every act of obedience, when you're following God, there's a blessing. On the other side of every act, I don't mean some acts, most acts, many acts. I mean every act of of obedience is followed by a blessing from the Lord. The servants take their time to fill the water pots with water. They have to get water from some location and then bring that water to this location, fill the water pots up, and then they have to stand by to see what's going to happen. This is the working of a miracle and this is how it occurs. Working of miracles is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. Verse number 8 says, after they filled it to the brim, 
Yeah, I mean, all the way to the top. Jesus speaks again. He says, now, draw it out. His first command, fill it. Second command, draw it out. And that's exactly what they did. He said, take it to the governor of the feast. That's the one who's pretty much in charge of putting the whole shebang together for the bride and the bridegroom. And they did it. They obeyed when it came to filling it. They obeyed when it came to drawing it out. And this is what it said they did. They took it to the governor. Again, obedience is important. We don't get married like people did in ancient times. I have been a part of several bride price negotiations overseas in the Middle East and in Africa. I have been right in the middle of the selection of brides for grooms, even when the grooms had no idea I was the one doing the selecting. And I can tell you, arranged marriages have been a blessing to a whole lot of people. It's totally odd to our culture. I mean, I, I, I love my, my dad. Folks over in the Middle East and in Africa, they trust their parents enough to allow them to arrange their spouse. But I love my dad, but I don't love him enough to let him choose my wife. And I've got great affection for my mom. I'm telling you, that woman took care of me, raised me to adulthood, helped me be a young man. But the idea of her choosing my wife, somehow that just doesn't sound right to me. But when you've been raised in a culture that's all you know. Then, of course, you expect that to happen to you when you come of age. This was a wedding where the people were celebrating, and lo and behold, they ran out of the very thing that they needed. I have heard stories of receptions where the people run out of food. That's a little embarrassing. Yeah. I've, I've heard of receptions where people have run out of other substances that they needed. That's a little embarrassing, too. So can you imagine what the thinking of the people was as the, 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 the buzz was being whispered all around the place? I think we have run out of wine. According to verse 9, once they filled it, drew it out, took it to the governor. Verse 9, the ruler came, tasted the water, turned to wine, didn't know where it was from, but the servants knew. The servants knew. Now here, here is something important. God gives his servants inside information sometimes. There are things that we as Christians know about the last days that other people in this world don't know. We know about the marriage supper of the Lamb that's going to occur in the future. Sinners don't know anything about it. We have inside information about what's going to happen when we all make it to heaven. And all of the things are taking place down here on planet Earth. We know we're going to be in New Jerusalem. Other people have no idea what's going to take place. With inside information, you can stand back and watch how things progress, even when other people don't even have a clue what's going to occur. But the servants knew. Can you imagine what that must have been like when they filled it with water, stepped back, went back over there, drew it out, and then all of a sudden realized that there's color to this water? Amazing. Now, the liberal scholars of the past like to say this wasn't a real miracle. They say that when the pots were empty, 
the, the dregs of wine were still in these pots and when they filled it with water, then quite naturally it mixed with the dredges. But let's remember, these were six water pots for purification. They would not have had wine in them in the first place. So here is the miracle that God has provided. Something that had been used for purification, the Lord has now used it to provide abundance. If you're going to deal with Jesus, you've got to realize one of his principles is either go big or go home. He filled it up. And when God does it, he does it with abundance. God doesn't just do small things. He does big things for you. And if you have a need, ask big things of God. Don't think that God's sitting up there and unconcerned about you. You cannot ask too much of God. Our problem is our faith hits a ceiling and then we move from faith into presumption. And we're no longer able to believe. But with God, all things are possible. For with God, nothing will be impossible unto you. So the governor was astonished. He said, oh, my goodness, I have never tasted anything like this. Of course he hadn't. He didn't even know where it come from. Of course he didn't. He wasn't in on the communication between Jesus, the mother and the servants. He had no idea that human hands didn't create this. He didn't know this was a miracle of God. And this is why I believe that John put this story first. as the first miracle that Jesus did, because all throughout the rest of John's book, he's going to demonstrate that there's nothing that ever can come from the hands of man that is comparable what God is able to do. Nothing at all. When God gets involved and it's a miracle, it's totally different than anything you'll ever receive from any man. So verse 10, he said, most people, when they're having a celebration, they put this wine, they wait until everybody is well drunk, and, and then that which is worse is brought out. Because you know, people that are inebriated, once they get tanked up, they don't care what the, bring all the bad wine out that you want to. Find all of the cheap wine that you can find at the local, local grocer that only costs you a dollar and a half or seven dollars. Bring it right out, and that's when they bring all that bad stuff out because drunk people don't care. But he recognized there's something different about this, and it's because it came from the hand of God. So here's what I want you to understand. When God does something for you, it's memorable. And when God makes something for you, it's memorable. When God takes a substance and transforms it, it's memorable. And when God took your life and turned you, transformed you from a sinner to a saint, it became memorable. This isn't just about these stone water pots or clay water pots. We ourselves have become vessels that contain the Creator. Vessels that are able to contain and hold the substance of God, the living water of God, the very righteousness of God. And God wants other people to come to us and be able to allow us to pour into their lives so that they can drink. How do you know that? Because Jesus said to the woman later on in a few chapters ahead, he said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me to give you living water and you drink of what I have. Jesus was that water of purification that had the wine of revelation to offer to somebody. And what God has placed in your heart is just as important also. And it says here, you kept the good until now. 
There's a verse that says the first to be last, the last to be first. I, I wished I could have traveled with some of the early apostles and been around with, with Jesus when he taught, but I'm quite happy to be alive right now. Yeah, God has saved the best for the last. He really has. We live in a time where there's technology. The Apostle Paul and Peter and John and James, they would all love to have been able to stand here, look into a camera and preach the gospel around the world. They would have loved to have been able to do that. They would have loved to have been able to get on an airplane and travel somewhere and tell folks all about the king. Or to get in a car that moves so much faster than a mule or a horse or a camel. I'm quite happy to be alive right now. To see what God is doing now is amazing. And that's why when you look into the Gospel of John, the stories get bigger, the stories get better. This beginning of miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. So there you have it. He manifested his glory. Part of the reason this miracle had to occur was to bring the glory of God into manifestation on planet Earth. Who in the world had ever seen water turned into wine? In the Old Testament, Moses saw bitter water made sweet. And Elisha saw something similar. But only Jesus saw the water that was made wine. So expect God to do something great in your life and don't be afraid to ask God to do big things. And when he does, expect transformation to occur. In Jesus' name, God bless you. Amen. We'll talk again soon.